The topic assigned to me is holy affections, clarity on the doctrine of love, and what better passage to go to than 1 John chapter 4. Please turn there in your Bibles, 1 John chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 7 through 12. And as you turn there, I'll just add this, that to have worked through a passage such as this, to have sought to come to terms with truths such as God is love. On a personal level, before even thinking about sharing those truths with you men, has been altogether overwhelming. And my prayer has eventually become one simply of surrender, asking that the Lord would teach all of us concerning his love. First John Chapter 4, verse 7 and following, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. May God bless his word to our hearts this afternoon. It was in 1563 that a group of university theologians in Heidelberg, Germany, came together and sought to write a new catechism for the benefit of the church. And their efforts come to us today, as you men know, in the form of the Heidelberg Catechism. More pastoral in its tone than the Westminster. You're made aware of that right from the very beginning with question one, which asks, what is my only hope in life and in death? What is my only hope in life and in death? To which the answer given is that I am not my own. I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the knowledge of the Father. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I am his, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. And he makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for him. Beyond Scripture... I think they are some of the most comforting words that have ever been written. 
And I start there this afternoon because as I have returned to question one of the Heidelberg time and time again for my own encouragement, for my own comfort, for my own strength, it has occurred to me that in many ways that first question is a representation of, a synopsis of, the flow of thought, the logic, the theology that is found in 1 John. Five chapters, 105 verses, writing, as you know, to a group of shaken believers who have undergone a trial, a trial of false teaching, some kind of distortion concerning the person of Christ, which has led to a distortion of the gospel, which in turn has robbed them of their assurance. And so John writes with the stated purpose that they would know that they have eternal life. Now, how does John give them this comfort, this strength? The answer is not primarily to give them commands. The answer is not primarily to lay down imperatives. It is interesting to note as you read through 1 John, the lack of imperatives. There are six in total. On average, just more than one per chapter. Compare that by way of example with James, who gives us an imperative on average every other verse. Not that John is seeking to diminish our responsibility in the gospel, but rather John understands in order to comfort, to encourage, to strengthen this congregation, he needs to bring Christ closer. He needs to make Christ larger. Because when Christ looms large, then assurance abounds. The believers are comforted and strengthened to go on. And when John does seek to direct them towards a particular course of action, he does so normally with an exhortation. And I labor this point because that's exactly the logic of John's argument in our text this afternoon. John says, let us love one another. One of his favorite themes in this letter, three times he comes back to it. Tyndale says, John singeth his old song again. Brothers, let us love one another, he says, for. Notice he doesn't give a direct imperative, but an exhortation. And then that one word for is arguably the most important word in our text. Because it is the keyhole, the gateway into understanding John's argument, his logic. He says, let us love one another because... God has loved us. Let us love one another because God has loved us. You see, John understands that it is by a proper understanding of the gospel that we live a proper Christian life. It is through doctrinal clarity that we make proper doctrinal application. And so a consideration of the responsibility that we have in the gospel to love one another quickly gives way to an exposition of God's love. And in our time together this afternoon, I want to draw your attention to just six different facets of God's love that John gives us. I dare say if we spent longer in the text, we could find more. So rich is this short text. Six different angles from which John views God's love 
always with the goal of laying a foundation by which we would then love one another with a biblical and holy affection. In an age where the love of God may be affirmed, in an age where the priority of love is celebrated and it may even be affirmed that God is love, and yet the practice of love that we see in society is as far removed from a biblical love as you could imagine. What the church needs is to return to a proper understanding of God's love as the means by which we then love one another. So what does John say? He says, beloved, let us love one another. Why? Firstly, because love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God. We love because we have been born of a loving God, says John. He notes that God is the source of all love, but then he presses the point, he forges the connection, the connection being the new birth. John is majoring here on the doctrine of the new birth. The implication being that as you have been born of a loving God, now you should start to look like him. As God has gifted you with a new birth, now you should start to look like him in your love. My son looks like me. He speaks like me. His mannerisms are the same as mine. Laura will often tell me, you do realize that when you're preaching up there, you're building the box, she says. She says, do you realize that when you get excited, you put things in the box? And then when you get really pumped up, you start to empty the box, she says. And I didn't believe her until I watched my son explain something to someone else. And there he is, just building the box. That's my boy. As you have been born of a loving God, you should now start to look like him and to encourage your people in the way of biblical holy affections, it is imperative that we teach the miracle of the new birth. You have been born a second time. You were dead in your sins, lifeless. And in your lifeless state, you were curved in on yourself so that no matter how upright, how righteous your acts of love appeared, they were only ever eventually directed towards yourself, coming from a self-centered heart. But God, in his love, gave to you life. And as he has caused you to be born a second time, so he straightened your back, so that now for the first time you can look beyond yourself. You can love in the way that God has loved you. You can now love others with a genuine concern of them and no concern for yourself. To push the matter further, to be born of God is to be born of another world. You don't belong here anymore. You belong in another world and your love should come from that world. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, unless you have been born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Unless you have been born of another world, you can't see that other world. To lean on C.S. Lewis again today and think of his quote where he says, if we have a desire 
which this world cannot satisfy. The most likely explanation is that we were made for another world. And John is, in effect, arguing here, if our love cannot be explained by the world, the most likely explanation is that we have been born of another world. This is the standard to which God calls us. And you can see how far we have fallen in the consumeristic age in which we live. Not speaking primarily about our spending habits, consumerism is a mindset that pervades every area of our lives. Our consumeristic tendencies are one that always opt for preference over and above any sense of responsibility that we have towards others. Preference over responsibility and self over others. And as that domineering mindset bleeds into the church, which invariably it does, we see congregation after congregation of consumers who do not know what it is to love with a biblical holy affection. Many of you will be familiar with David Bebbington's study of the late 1980s when he sought to define the evangelical. How do we define this curious creature called the evangelical? And he concluded, it seems to me, the evangelical is concerned with a crucicentrism, a biblicism, conversionism, and activism. The evangelical is concerned with the cross, the Bible, the doctrine of conversion, and doing things, evangelism, discipleship, counseling, and so on. And that has become the definitive definition of the evangelical. And more than a few have noted since that study that the thing missing is the church, not to criticize Bebbington. He's just saying what he sees. This is what preoccupies the evangelical. And he finds no cause to conclude that the evangelical is concerned with a love for his brother. He finds no cause to conclude that the evangelical is preoccupied with, concerned with, a love for his brother. The congregation of faith must become the community of love. And rightly has it been said that to fail to love one another is not to fail merely ethically, but to fail in the whole issue of salvation. How do we return to a biblical love? It begins with teaching on the miracle of the new birth. John goes on and gives a second reason why we love We love because we know God, because we know a loving God, John says. And to be clear, salvation in John is always presented as a holistic package. Soteriology in Johannine thought is always presented as one complete package. To be born of God is to know God. And yet... John teases out those blessings here as if to add emphasis to each constituent part. 
And so he says here, you have been born of a loving God and you know a loving God. And knowledge in John is so often a relational verb as it is here. The point being, you've been brought into a knowing, loving relationship with this God. By implication, as you know him, he knows you. Consider just how saturated with love is his knowledge of you, is this relationship in which you're in. If you did nothing to prompt God's love for you in the act of salvation, 10,000 things have you done since for him to be done with you. If you did nothing to initiate his love toward you in salvation, you have done countless things to cause him to turn his back on you and to be done with you. And yet he goes on with you in love. And his love rests upon you infinitely, perfectly, freely. It is steadfast. And there is nothing, pastor, that you can do to diminish God's love as it rests upon you. It is as great this hour as it was when you first were saved. Before coming over to Grace, I served seven years in Her Majesty's Royal Navy, God save the Queen. Six of those were under the water on a submarine. I wouldn't commend it to anyone. The first year, altogether glorious but short, was on an aircraft carrier. I remember very clearly one day we were operating out in the Indian Ocean. And I rose very early in the morning to be alone with the Lord, and I went right to the very back of that enormous flight deck. And I remember reading that morning Psalm 13. I will trust in your steadfast love. I will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And it occurred to me as I was pondering the steadfast love of the Lord, not only was there nobody else on that flight deck, but as I looked up and turned around 360 degrees, miles and miles and miles and miles of ocean and not another ship on the water, as far as you could see in every direction, ocean. And I'll tell you, there are a few things that will make you feel as insignificant as that. And as I pondered the steadfast love of the Lord with miles and miles of water around me, it occurred to me that that is a drop in the bucket compared to God's love that rests upon you this very minute. If you swam for a thousand years in the ocean of God's love, you would not find the shore. If you dive down 10,000 leagues under the surface, you would not find the bottom. God's love rests on you infinitely, perfectly, and notice it comes to you in accordance with his perfect knowledge. You see, we cannot separate the attributes of God. God knows you, you know him, you're in this loving, knowing relationship with God, and his love is being made manifest in your life in accordance with his perfect knowledge. Why is my ministry this way? Because God loves you. 
Why are these the trials that plague my ministry? Because God loves you. Why is this my ministry and not that? Why don't I have that ministry? Because God loves you. And I understand in a room like this with thousands of pastors, thousands of congregations represented here, you men bring burdens to the table, innumerable, untold, burdens that perhaps no one else can understand save except for another pastor. And the danger, the temptation within the ministry is not so much that one Sunday you might get into the pulpit and start to preach another kind of love. The danger that exists before you is not so much that you start to veer away from a theological affirmation of biblical love, but rather in practice, through the woes of the pastorate, slowly but surely over the years, you close up your heart and you withdraw and you no longer practice a biblical love. And the only means by which you might remain steadfast in your affections for the congregation is to continually affirm, to choose to believe, to trust in the fact that every set of circumstances within a broken world according to God's economy are a manifestation of his perfect love for you. We love because we know a loving God. John carries on and gives us a third reason to love. He says we love because God is love. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And I trust that you know the experience, old Margaret or maybe it's young Johnny, it may even be Elder Frank that comes up to you on a Sunday morning after you're spent, you've preached your heart out, and he says to you, Pastor, that was deep, profound, which is really just a polite way of saying you weren't very clear today. Where do we begin with God is love? What do we say about the truth that God is love? For God is statements in the Bible. God is love. God is light. God is spirit. God is a consuming fire. It's not wrong to say that as we read these God is statements, we really are getting into the heart of what it means to be God. As we read God is light, we understand that he is a holy God. As we read God is love, we understand he is a loving God. He is not just the source of love, but it's very definition. And so God is love apart from anything else. God is love without reference to anything else. We don't define God's love by reference to something else. God is love. Before you and I were created, before the foundation of the world, God is love. And thereby implication, because God is love without reference to anything else, we see here an inner Trinitarian love, a love that existed before the foundation of the world between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
a perfect love that was ongoing in communion within the Trinity. And it is that love that has come to you in the gospel. We stand here this afternoon as the recipients of Jesus' prayer in John 17. Father, the love with which you have loved me, may it be in them. And it is. You see, the privilege of this love, we stand here as the recipients, not of some other love, but as the love which is love, which is God before the foundation of the world. This inner Trinitarian love now comes to us. And there are at least two immediate implications from that. The first is to understand this, that as God is love, without any reference to anything else, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving each other perfectly, God's love is inherently holy, inherently set apart, distinct, unlike any other kind of love. In the truest sense of the word, God's love is a holy love. And so as it comes to you in the gospel, it starts to determine the way in which you ought to love. The responsibility we have is not to love in a generic way, but to love in a holy way, in an upright way, a way that honors God's righteousness. Consider the challenge that is before us. Notice how John, at this point, switches to the negative. Anyone who does not love God, anyone who does not love, does not know God, speaking most likely of those false teachers. Did they love while they were among you? possibly. Did you experience some kind of generosity, benevolence from them while they were among you? Possibly. But not in this way. Not that that is in accord with God's love. The responsibility we have is to love in a holy love. You see, we live in a time which paradoxically affirms the priority of love. You look at society and the priority of love is readily affirmed. Indeed, it is even the case that in society today, the fact that God is love is affirmed. But that love has been so separated from God's holiness that it has been altogether sanitized, distorted, mutated, All of God's attributes must work together. And the love that is affirmed in society today knows not God's holiness. It has been separated so that though society may say God is love and we must love, the love that is practiced is a love that is predicated merely on tolerance and choice. We live in an age where society doesn't care whether you go on with your wife or divorce her. Society cares that you had a choice. We live in an age where society does not care whether you identify as a man or a woman. Society cares that you had a choice. We live in an age where society doesn't care whether you let your baby live or not. What society cares about is that you had a choice. And if you didn't have a choice, then that is unloving. Our responsibility is to love with a holy love, 
a love that runs on the rails of God's holiness. Second implication that flows readily from the fact that God is love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, loving each other perfectly before the foundation of the world. When God loved you, he loved you freely. His love came to you not based upon some need of his. To think about the love of God coming to you in the gospel is to think upon one of the freest acts you could ever conceive of. He had no need of you. And with no need, he loved you. And again, this must determine the manner in which we love. We do not have the right to love based upon preference. We do not have the right to consider the loveliness of the object. If God had considered the loveliness of the object, you would not be here today. You are the recipient of God's free love. And so we must love with a holy affection that is given freely. And the only means by which we might accomplish such high lofty standards is again to think upon, to meditate upon, to train our hearts in a proper understanding of God's love. John gives a fourth reason. We love why? Because we live through Christ. He goes on, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And so John here begins to advance his argument. Having spoken about God being the source of love, the definition of love, he picks up here that sending motif that is so prevalent all the way through his gospel. The father sending his son. And here he says, the sending of his son that we might have life in him is evidence of God's love for us. And it is to be the impetus for our love for others. Now, without doubt, there is at least some theological overlap here between the idea of life in Christ and the relationship, the loving, knowing relationship that we have with God. But at the same time, there is perhaps here a particular accent on eternal life in Christ. Another one of John's favorite themes. And often when we see the word life, live, it is John's shorthand for eternal life. And so the question becomes, what does it mean to have eternal life? What does it mean to live through Christ? It is a life that is saturated with God's love. It is a a life that you enjoy now. Eternal life is not merely future, eschatological. You enjoy eternal life now. And it begins with acceptance before the Father, where once you had no place to appear before his throne, where once you could not stand before him, you could not offer a prayer to him, where once you were rightly a stench in his nostrils and his wrath hung over you. Now, you have as much right to appear before the Father as the beloved Son. To have life in Christ means that you now have an advocate. Besides the the Father's right hand, you have a helper. 
one who is interceding for you day and night, hour by hour. Christ is upholding you. He's pleading your case and he pleads it perfectly. And be sure he's not saying to the father, forgive him because I don't think he meant to sin. The case that Christ brings before the father is not, father, cleanse him again because I think we're on an upward trajectory and this time next year, I don't think we'll be doing this anymore. It's so often the way we think. Christ is standing with the Father and saying, Father, forgive him again because I died for him and he lives in me. And the Father is not begrudging. He delights to hear that plea and he willingly and joyfully accepts it every time. He is in complete agreement with the Son. Because you have life in Christ. To have life in Christ means that you now abide. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit abiding with the Trinity. Going along with them in such a way that they are serving you. They are ministering to you. Carrying you along. Teaching you the truth. Working in you to such a degree that now there are fruits of righteousness being produced in your life. To the praise of God who saved you. To have life in Christ means that you are being led step by step, day by day to that final day. Very, very, very soon. You will be stood before the Lord Jesus. And you will look into his eyes. And you will see the hands their holes. And you will sing praises to his face. And if in that moment it was somehow possible to take your eyes off the risen Lord Jesus, to look at yourself you would find no sin. If somehow it were possible in that moment to take your eyes off the risen Lord Jesus and to look around you, you would see no sin. Because we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Because we have life in Christ. Can you see how saturated our lives are with love? We have six children. And I remember all the way back when we had one, and life was a whole lot simpler back then. And I remember as we were expecting number two, Laura saying to me, I just don't know if I can love a second in the same way that I love this child. I just don't know if my heart can love a second to the same degree. Your heart is bursting with love for this baby. And now number two is coming. 
And of course, the truth is that God works a miracle in your heart, enlarges your heart so that number two arrives and you find you have just as much love for a second. And again, for a number three and four and five and six and miracle after miracle of love in your heart. And I think upon that and I know how imperfect our love is. How inconsistent, how flawed is our love. God loves us with the perfect love, infinite and free and holy. And pastor, if you look around your congregation and you don't see this kind of love being practiced, you're not seeing that self-denying, life-laying-down, holy affection being exercised amongst the saints It may be because you have not preached the love of God. It might be because you have been too quick to preach the gospel imperatives. And you have not laid the necessary foundation of the gospel indicatives. It may be that you climb into the pulpit and all too quickly go to the commands of Scripture, which to be sure, are easier to preach rather than going about the far more difficult task of ministering the gospel to a weary soul, bathing the souls of the congregation in the truth of God's love. To do so would be to go against the logic of Scripture. It would be to go against John's argument here. Let us love one another because God has loved us. In this utilitarian age where we're so eager to do something, to tick a box, to respond, to act, John says, No. Above all things, know the love of God. And that is the foundation upon which we respond. John goes on to give a fifth reason why we love. We love, why? Because Christ is our propitiation. And this is love, verse 10, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And maybe your Bible doesn't have that word propitiation, in which case you need to close your Bible. And when this session is over, go visit the book tent. Men, we must continue to define the gospel in terms of Christ's propitiation. We cannot afford to define the gospel apart from Christ's propitiation. Google has that tool now where you can look up the relative use of a word over time and Sure enough, it shows that propitiation is less and less used now than it was before. We must help our people to understand Christ's propitiation because it speaks so specifically to what happened on the cross. If a vehicle is going down the street and a child is playing in the street and neither driver nor child has seen what's about to happen, but you have and you you run in between the car and the child, you take up 
the motion of that vehicle. You propitiate its force. In the same way that Christ propitiated God's wrath on the cross. Seemingly straightforward. So why is it being used less frequently today? And in part, the answer is because outside of Scripture, this word is often used so as to imply that the, the deity was in some way persuaded by the sacrifice to now act benevolently to the subject. That in some way that sacrifice persuaded, cajoled the deity into now loving the subject. And you see immediately the breakdown in our illustration or just how far the biblical understanding of propitiation is from that. It is not that Christ somehow persuaded God to love us at the cross, but rather in love, God sent his son to die on the cross. Was there a holy wrath over the sinner? Yes. But at the same time, God sent his son to die on the cross for us as an act of his love towards us. This is where the driver needs to also be the person getting in the way of the vehicle. It defines the God whom we serve. It is not that God loves us because Christ died for us but that Christ died for us because God loves us. Men, we must be found at the cross. Our ministries must be found at the cross. Why? Because it defines the God whose excellencies we seek to proclaim. I was told of a philosopher whose name is Nicholas Waterstorff. He's made many notable contributions. He has four children and then a fifth who died aged 25 in a climbing accident. And the loss of his son has marked him. His grief has influenced much of his subsequent work. And if Waterstorff is ever asked to give an address, to deliver a paper, to speak at a conference, and the The folks that invite him ask, how should we introduce you? He says, introduce me as the man who has lost a son. God did not lose his son by some accident at the cross, but it defines him. And so as you tell your neighbor about your God, As you tell the lady in the store about your God, as you tell your children about your God, you say, my God is the God who sent his son to die so that I might have life. My God is the God who sent his son to die so that today I live. And it is on that basis that we love. Finally, number six, why do we love? We love because we have been entrusted with God's love. John says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Notice that John repeats the opening exhortation there. Two times he gives us the exhortation to love one another at the very beginning and then in verse 11. And he repeats himself there because the propitiatory work of Christ is the climax of his argument. 
And then he says in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Speaking there about the doctrine of abiding, John goes on to say, when we love one another with a holy affection, God's love is perfected in us. Now, what does it mean that his love is perfected? Not that now our love for one another is without error. Not that it is without flaw. We understand this side of glory, that will never happen. The verb to be perfected there carries with it the sense of reaching its intended goal. As we love one another, says John, now God's love in us has reached its intended goal. It's now doing the very thing that it was intended to do. It is now working in us and through us so that we love like God loves. Not that anyone said it would be easy. No one ever said this would be easy. There are no footnotes in your Bible. There's no verse we can turn to that says this will be an easy task. A friend of mine who pastors in the South told me of a song they sing in the congregation. I'm so glad you're in God's family. And the idea is, Everyone looks at one another as they sing, making eye contact. I'm so glad you're in God's family. Because he's a Brit, he has a dry sense of humor. And he said, when we sing that song, I say, I'm surprised you're in God's family. (laughs) And he said, the reason I can sing that is because I know that as they look at me, they're thinking exactly the same thing. No one ever said it would be easy, but consider the privilege. John says, no one has ever seen God. Why does he conclude with that? Why say that? You have to remember all of 1 John is in many ways an unfolding of the theology that John himself received from Jesus recorded for us in John's gospel. There are a multitude of connections between this epistle and John's gospel, and it's in John's gospel that we read there, no one has ever seen God. Same words, no one has ever seen God, and yet in John's gospel, he said, no one has ever seen God, but the Son has made him known. John chapter 1, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus the Son explains him, puts him on display, and the argument here, many years later, Jesus ascended no longer bodily with us. As John hands on the baton to the church, he says, no one has ever seen God. But when you love with a self-denying, life-laying-down, freely, holy affection, you make God known. You explain God to a watching world. You see why now, in that last meal, Jesus says, of all the things he could have said, he says, you've got to love one another. You have got to love one another, and it is by this that the world will know that you're my disciples. It is by this that you will explain God, you will put him on display. And what can be sure is that in society, though a biblical holy affection is by no means practiced, as they look in on the church, they know what they expect to see. They may not know scripture, but they know that they should expect something different, something uniquely holy. No one has ever seen God, but as we love one another with a biblical holy affection, 
we make him known. And in accordance with the eschatological emphasis that pervades every section of this letter, we understand we do that until that great last day when Jesus returns. And in that day, we will love him perfectly. We will love each other perfectly. We will receive love perfectly. And we will not need to explain God because he will be fully known. May we be those who lead the church in a biblical, holy affection. Let's pray to close. Our Father, we love you and we are so thankful for your love towards us. You are love and we are the beneficiaries of your love. Strengthen us to love one another, to lead the church in love for one another until that day when Christ returns. Help us and be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen.